Hi, I'm Tracy. And I'm Sharon. And we are Feet of Clay. Confessions of the Cult Sisters. We've heard from listeners who have been amazed and inspired and outraged. Yes, yes, outraged. Much outrage. By the story of Abigail Whithauer, who was our recent guest. Abigail shared her experience growing up in the IBLP church. That's the Institute of Basic Life Principles, if you haven't been living under a rock and not hearing that. (laughs) Founded by none other uh, than Bill Gothard. Wait, wait, wait. I have rechristened him. Oh, yes. Bill Gothard. You're welcome. Bill got hard in all the wrong ways. Uh, (laughs) IBLP was recently exposed on the Prime Video docuseries, Shiny Happy People. Yes, and Abigail told us about her childhood, her teens, and her early adulthood, and how she survived all sorts of shit and abuse and trauma, and has come out really thriving on the other side. In between some of our recording sessions, Abigail also told us about her good friend, Chad, a young man whom, if you've watched Shiny Happy People, you are already familiar with him, the dude with the black shirt and the red tie who just was amazing in his descriptions and insights. And Abigail suggested that we might want to chat with Chad to which we said, can I say that three times fast? Chat with yes. Chad. Chat with Chat Chad. with Chad. Chat with Chad. <laughs> oh, a new podcast series, Chats with Chad. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> to which we, of course, said, hell yes. And so today we are delighted to be joined by both of these amazing people. Woohoo! But before we dive in, we did want to give a trigger warning here. Our discussions today will likely include topics of spiritual abuse, childhood and teen trauma, ritualized spankings, arranged marriages, sexual assault, etc. All that shit that comes along Mm. with Bill Gothard and the IBLP. So Mm -hmm. please use discretion. Keep in mind that this material is absolutely not appropriate for children and make sure to take care of yourself. Thank you very much for that wise word of caution, Tracy. Okay, let's get started. Abigail, welcome back to Feet of Clay, Confessions of the Cult Sisters. Hey, y'all. I'm so happy to be back. I haven't heard of y'all in a long time. Well, you know, Atlanta and then now Alabama, it's just, it's very sticky in the window. For those who don't know, our commune was in Texas where we all did say y'all a lot. (laughs) We did. There's a whole lot of Texisms. Texisms? Is that the right word? Texasisms? <laughs> we'll have to go into someday. It's like exorcisms, but from Texas. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> oh, and of course, Abigail, thank you, thank you for bringing in your very good friend, Chad. You are actually the first cult brother we have had on our show, and we are so thrilled to meet you and hear your story. So welcome. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be the first cult brother you've ever had. And I would just like to second that y'all, you know, I mean, being from (laughs) Alabama, I just have to, you know, I have to represent. So yeah, y'all, y'all to y'all as well. Great brother Chad. And brother Chad is fixing to share some stuff with us. Brother Chad is fixing to share some stuff with us. We used to call people brother and sister in our uh, commune in Texas. And brother Chad, we feel like we kind of know you already a little bit after watching Shiny Happy People. 
I can't express how proud we both have been of you. And I know so many people that we've been hearing from just your bravery, impressed with how well-spoken you were, your insights. And of course, we were delighted when Abigail told us of her friendship with you. And as we get started here, I guess the big question that we all have is, what was it like for you to participate in that documentary? Because I assume it was done way before it aired. And what sort of response have you been getting? Oh, it was a great privilege. Um, I actually started working with the creators long before Amazon came into the picture. Mm. Uh, Everyone involved in this project that I've worked with, uh, the entire creative team have just been so empathetic. And they've really worked to center the stories of the victims themselves. That was a priority for them from the start. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to give a special shout out to Olivia Christ and Lauren Andrade, who uh, were the original people I worked with on the project and worked with them throughout. That's the directors. They've just done a really amazing job. And yeah, I I was able to uh, get started with them about three years ago in the middle of COVID. Wow. The bulk of what you saw in the documentary I recorded back in January of 2022. And It was just uh, wonderful to see it all come together. Uh, The editing team did a really amazing job. The directors, uh, executive producers, just uh, everyone, you know, was very transparent, kept in touch. And the response has been amazing. Uh, I really liked what you said at the beginning where you said that, you know, if you haven't heard of IBLP at this point, you've probably been living under a rock. (laughs) And that's exactly what I wanted to see come from this documentary because IBLP operated on such a large scale for so long. And no one seemed to care. And now they do. And the fact that, you know, they're out there, they're famous, uh, people can actually detect more of what they put out into the world. It's amazing to me because I feel like that exposure is ultimately what's going to bring them down. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That one cut that they showed where everybody was IBLP, IBLP, IBLP was brilliant to help that get lodged in our heads so that we can definitely recognize that now. Well, the other thing that's just interesting to me, Tracy, is looking back on our years, all those years ago, decades ago, we were highly influenced by Gothard's teachings, but IBLP as like a systematic cult was not a thing even we were aware of. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And one of the most encouraging responses that I've gotten from this documentary and all the feedback I've seen from people online is that people are starting to connect the dots Mm. from Gothard to however they were influenced in their version of Christianity. Um, Gothard touched on a lot of things that, unfortunately, we see in a lot of uh, mainstream Christian nationalism today. Yes, Some of the very extreme things in politics, uh, for example, have been very much influenced by, you know, the circles that Gothard ran in. And the fact that people are starting to apply it to their own uh, experiences and say, hey, wait a minute, I've seen that umbrella diagram before, or I've heard that critique of rock music before. The, The fact that people are starting to see just how pervasive it was is, you know, really fascinating. And quite frankly, it's very validating. The sooner we can suss it out, the sooner we can get it out. Yeah, totally. You know, one of the things Tracy and I, we've we've scratched our heads for many years, actually a couple of decades now, coming out of the uh, mindset that we were locked into. And the thing that has been frustrating, I think, for us is the way in which so many Christians slash evangelicals slash society in general 
can just kind of go, oh, isn't that quaint? Isn't that cute? You know, when they hear certain things from the Bible or certain teachings of Christianity. The problem is, in a way, these little kind of Christian light versions or, you know, what we used to call kind of the do-gooder quasi-Christians that aren't living it to the full extreme, like IBLP, Yes, it makes it seem innocuous. And the truth is, it's just not consistent. IBLP is being consistent. They are actually living what they're claiming to believe, whereas many will give lip service to the belief, but not go full in in the lifestyle. And so it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a mind twist for me. Oh, absolutely. And you know, one thing I would like to clarify on the whole, you know, teachings of IBLP as it was practiced by each family. And one thing that they didn't really go into in the documentary that I've I've tried to, you know, clarify for folks on my channel and what have you, uh, is that the rules were very strict and they were very much across the board. And Gothard had an opinion on literally everything. <laughs> you know, if uh <laughs> it was his opinion, and you were welcome to it. <laughs> but but the thing is, like, no family that I know of, and there may have been one or two hardcores that I never met personally, but I don't know of any family that followed the rules 100% of the time, even. So even in the strictest mm. uh, application of IBLP, like, for example, you know, my family technically was not supposed to have a TV that could be a TV. You know, we, we, we would mostly function as a VCR receptacle, but we would watch broadcast over the air TV from time to time. We just didn't let anybody in IBLP know about it. Wow. I knew of another family whose uh, daughters all wore pants because they worked on a farm and, you know, there were, were no real farm hands to speak of. All the kids had to pitch in and it's really hard to go out there and wrestle goats and horses and cows, you know, in a dress. So, right. you know, they would go out and wear pants from time to time. They just wouldn't do it at the conferences. And I believe that this was by design because, you know, if IBLP was aware that, you know, their members weren't always following all of the uh, rules all of the time, if they ever had a problem in their family or something happened in their lives that didn't fit the narrative of the wealth and the success that you were mm. promised, then they could always go back in and say, oh, well, the problem clearly is that you let a TV into your house. Therefore, you're not measuring up. Therefore, this is all your fault. Right. Or, you know, if unfortunately one of the abuses that we saw like with Josh Duggar uh, happens in, in the family, IBLP could say, oh, well, your daughter's clearly defrauded their brother because they were wearing pants. Things like that. Yes. They would always find something where you wouldn't measure up. And therefore, any horrible thing that happened to you or anything that didn't fit the entire narrative was your fault. It was a very victim-making process. You're so right. That is so well stated. And we came out of something very similar. And so when we were struggling with things in our own life, we were also conditioned, well, I must have dot, 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 not followed the instructions of the Bible as clearly that would have given me this guaranteed success. And you know, we're seeing that even now we are involved in a, an alumni site with people that used to be in our commune with us. And it's a lot of that same thinking. These are the outliers because exactly what you said, they didn't follow the letter of the law exactly as laid out that guarantees that success. Wow. 
And that's one thing that I've seen happen quite a few times in the comments about the documentary. There have been people who will leave like a one or two star review and say, well, you know, okay, so they talked about some of the horrible things that happened in IBLP, and sure, they happened, but they didn't talk about all the people that Bill Gothard blessed or how many people found value in IBLP. <laughs> and, I mean, it, it just makes me laugh because I'm like, even the people who were quote-unquote hashtag blessed and everything, they um, they suffered just as much of the abuses as we did, and I guarantee you, if you take out that microscope and look harder, you will find where there are some horrible family mm. dynamics that came about because of it. Yeah, there just can't not be. I mean, it's it's denial of basic human connection and emotion and humanity. And you're not going to have good stuff happen when you do that. In the end, you're just not. Hey, Chad, I'd I'd really like to learn a few more details, if you're willing, about your personal story. Like, could you describe for us a little bit about your childhood? Like, when did your parents get involved with IBLP? How many siblings did you have? And what was life like growing up? Well, I was born into a independent fundamental Baptist preacher's home, Ooh. who also happened to be a missionary at, at one point. My family is originally from the backwoods of a little county called Walker County, Alabama. It's not very big, and it's mostly a coal mining area. Uh, as I said in the documentary, you either worked at a coal mine or a steel mill, or in my dad's case, at one point, he worked at a cast iron pipe shop. Very industrial, very hard manual labor mm -hmm. jobs around there. And they all came from there. My dad, uh, when he worked at a cast iron pipe shop, rededicated his life to Jesus. He had already been a Christian in his teen years, but he kind of fell away. He rededicated his life and decided to become a preacher, which, you know, as I said, is a lot better than working at a still mill. I could see the appeal of that, frankly. Hmm. He decided to become a, a preacher and he eventually became a preacher for a few small congregations in Alabama and what have you until he felt the call to go to the Netherlands and Belgium as a missionary, <laughs> which, you know, being a missionary to two of the most Christian affluent countries <laughs> in the world probably doesn't hurt. <laughs> but um, sometime there, he started losing his hearing and decided he would better be served as a pastor for a military work in England. And that's where I was born. By that point, uh, he had had three children, I have two older sisters uh, born right after each other and then an older brother. And the older brother was born 10 years before I was. So I very clearly was not planned. And my folks took great pains to remind me of that a lot. Aww. So when I was 10 months old, we moved back to Alabama. Therefore, that's how I lost my accent, really. <laughs> we moved back at 10 months old. And I grew up in the Walker County area where when I was about six or seven years old, my folks started homeschooling me as they had experimented with doing with my older siblings while they were overseas. Uh, my older brother went to a Christian school for a while, but my folks decided, well, let's try to homeschool this one and see what happens. And they had trouble finding a curriculum that really worked for me and eventually my older brother when they brought him back into homeschooling. Around this time, my mom was approaching her 40s and she started going to an OBGYN in Birmingham, Alabama who was a Christian because they refused to go to non-Christian doctors or anyone who wasn't the right kind of Christian, if it was Catholic, right out. Hmm. So uh, she started going to this OBGYN talking about 
essentially like how to plan and handle, you know, the possibility of getting pregnant while menopause was going to happen. And this doctor told her, well, I know how you believe in everything. And I know that you've been dedicated ministers and you've turned everything else in your life over to God. Why don't you turn over to God the amount of children you're going to have? Wow. Wow. Wait, there's a doc. This was, this was a, a practicing OBGYN who told her this. Was he connected? Oh, you may get to that, God. but I, I'm familiar with Dr. Wheat because I read his fucking book before I got married. Was he a doctor connected <laughs> to anything like the IBLP or the Baptist? Well, he gave her a book <laughs> called A Full Quiver. Oh, God. And that was an introductory book to the Quiverful movement. Which, for people who are unfamiliar, the Quiverful movement is this idea that children are these arrows that you can fire out against Satan's dominion in the world and, you know, make a difference for God by having as many children as possible. There is a verse in the Bible that says, as arrows in the hands of a mighty man, so are uh, his children. Blessed is he who hath his quiver full of them. So uh, the quiverful movement is the idea that you should have as many children as God would, would allow you to have in order to partake in the spiritual warfare through overpopulation. I just want to say very good memory of that Bible verse. Uh, I I find myself, I can't remember them very well. Well done. Well done. That's intentional, Tracy. I think we try to block that shit out as much as we can. I may not have quoted it exactly in the King James, but it's, it, it's definitely still there. Scripture memorization was a large part of IBLP. Mm. So, so what happened was, um, yeah, my parents decided, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And mm. they... They decided at seven years after I was born to go ahead and have two more children, wow. which you know, was all mom was able to have physically until she hit her mid forties. But um, along the way, you know, we became very good friends with this doctor and his family. And we all kind of went in together to these seminars that they started having in our area that was uh, endorsed and propagated by one Bill Gothard. So to my recollection, the uh, doctor's family and my family all went into IBLP at the same time. They were our best friends in the cult. And we, uh, we started uh, doing their homeschooling curriculum, which, according to my mom, it would work best for my much older brother and myself and my younger siblings coming along when they were of school age. Because Gothard reported that everything in ATI, which was the homeschooling branch of IBLP, could be taught to children of pretty much any age range. Because scripture is timeless, don't you know? Yep. <laughs> so they started us on the wisdom booklets. That was effectively my homeschooling throughout the vast majority of my school life. I was the only one who stayed in until I graduated high school. My younger siblings eventually started doing the Abeka video courses and everything when they reached about preteen age, but I was 100% homeschooled through IBLP from the time I was about six or seven years old. And it was just, it it was just night and day difference from what I can remember from my previous years in homeschooling, just using whatever Mm. curriculum my folks thought was good that week. uh, It was very regimented and just an extreme change for us. Wow. So in, in that, did you have any kind of relationship with God yourself? Because it sounds like you're kind of brought into this system that has a lot of rules. Where were you at as far as your own concept of God and your relationship to Jesus? Well, I essentially had to have a relationship <laughs> with God. Otherwise... It's always effective. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Otherwise, I would make Dad look bad, and we just couldn't have that. I was a very 
what my folks deemed strong-willed child. Mm. They followed the teachings of James Dobson before they went into IBLP and all the books that went along with that, which if anyone's unfamiliar, James Dobson was a huge proponent of physically beating your children. Folks call it spanking. I call it beating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He, he propagated child abuse. Uh, he was a voice for like the old school ways of raising your child. And he had a lot to say about children who were deemed strong willed. There was actually a book called The Strong-Willed Child by James Dobson. It may as well have been called The Chad Harris Story. <laughs> Doctor. But yeah, Dr. James Dobson, you're, you're correct. And it, it still strikes me just how many people with actual degrees bought mm-hmm. into all this weird fundamentalism. But I was a strong-willed child, and my, my mother used to brag to complete strangers that I was the child that she spanked the most out of anyone in our family. Oh. And it was true. Oh my God. Yeah, I received a, a lot of physical beating uh, growing up. My mother had a very short temper. I'm sure she has some unresolved mental issues, which dad was aware of. He consistently told us that our jobs as children were to make sure that she didn't fly off the handle, because if she did, it was our fault. Oh, my gosh. Um, my dad, of course, he was also complicit in all this, not only enabling mom, but also performing much of the ritualistic spankings that you saw in shiny happy people that was almost word for word what happened in my case okay chad i just i i want to just pause here for just a moment and go ahead and tell you that it is just it's excruciating to hear and to know what you and so many of your generation were subjected to that disconnection, that fucked up, bizarre, horrible, horrible ritual of needing to hug and say, I love you to the person who has just beaten you is such a mind fuck and so unfair. And you know what? It would be bad enough if it was just some sadistic asshole doing it. But of course, it's your parent. And even worse, it's done in the name of God as a demonstration of God's love. And if that doesn't fuck a person over for relationships and trust and intimacy, I don't know what the hell else would. Oh, you're right. So I'm just sorry. I'm so sorry you were subjected to Well, thank you. And and thank you for expressing that. I... I told someone the other day that, you know, there is no way that you can go through this abuse that they encouraged and not turn out fucked up children. And I'm exhibit A on that. Um, it's, mm. it, it was horrible. It was abusive. And the one thing about that entire ritual that they display, which again, if you, if y'all haven't already <laughs> figured out trigger warnings on everything I'm about to say, the whole act of hugging afterwards, mm. that was something that we absolutely did. But when I was watching that, the fact that the child was put back over the knee when he didn't mm. hug convincingly enough. I don't recall that happening to me, but if, if it had, I definitely would have been caught in an endless loop of that because I was spanked until I didn't register any emotional response mm. at all. Mm-hmm. No crying out, no yelling, no act of self-protection. I learned very quickly at an early age mm-hmm. how to block out pain. But in doing so, I would just block out any emotion. So if I was asked to express love immediately after that, I couldn't. 
because I was empty. Dissociation. I will say this about that spanking video, kind of to Chad's point. I don't have a recollection, like a specific memory of of somebody telling me I didn't hug them well enough afterwards. But I had such a visceral response to that moment in watching it in the documentary. I actually watched it again last night. Like I, I have to believe my body that, that there is a reason I had such a moment with that now multiple times watching it. It, it had to have happened. Yes. Yes. And I want to say, you know, as somebody, I think we talked last time for the listeners who want to go back and listen to Abigail's story. We talk about this in our first interview with her. And, you know, you're talking, you know, to two people who were parents, who were definitely read James Dobson's books, definitely read Larry Tomzak, who does another version of this horrific uh, child abuse scenario. and. When I watched that also on the documentary, I had to walk away. I mean, the visceral reaction also was really strong. And I, too, cannot ever remember trying to make my child hug me. But I think what it was triggering is this whole element of controlling their emotional response. And, you know, it's in the actual manuals. Like, they cannot fight too hard because you have to get them to accept that this is their discipline. They can't be melodramatic. They have to have the right kind of response. And and I think when he goes in for that hug, it is all of that just rushing over all of us of this is so sick and twisted and trying to get all of the emotional response. And just like you said, Chad, and I've heard that from other podcast survivors, you're empty. You're completely empty. I'm assuming you went into completely disassociated mode at that point. I, I did have to pause, and I, I told uh, Heather Heath, who I, I watched it with, uh, she's in the documentary as well, the Devil Sticks uh, individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I told her, I was like, we, we need to stop here for a minute, because I said, there's there's a lot that just happened in my mind. And she you know, graciously did, and we talked about it. Uh, we talked about it over the phone with our friend, Lindsay Williams, who's also in the documentary. She couldn't be there that night, but we called her and we we all just had a, a session of processing, which was healing and which was needed. But, you know, watching that just really drove home to me, you know, the fact that this wasn't a mistake. This wasn't just a one-off thing. This was something that hundreds of people sat in a congregation and laughed at and encouraged and shamed that poor kid up there to have this demonstrated to them for them to do at their own homes. And that just is so fucked up. It's so intentional and it's so on the surface wrong that looking at it now, like even if I had been in then, you know, something in the back of my mind would have said, this is wrong. I don't know why all these people like sat there and just let it happen. And not one person that I could hear or see said, stop, you know, this, this needs to stop now. It's the systematic mind control because basically whether it's IBLP or extreme evangelistic messages or us in last days, the overall message is that your heart is desperately wicked. Yes. 
And therefore, you cannot trust your heart. And emotions are labeled as sinful. And so the whole idea of questioning or, quote, rebelling or not being happy gets painted with this broad brush of sin, and it's a matter of eternal life and death. And they cultivate a belief in us to not trust our own hearts and minds. And that's how, that's how that slippery slope just gets worse and worse and worse. That was definitely true of my childhood. Uh, I was told from a very early age that, you know, there is another Bible verse that says that rebellion is as the sin of mm-hmm. witchcraft, which, you know, now I think witchcraft is kind of a good time, but. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, right. But, um, but, but that was what was like mm. planted in my mind over and over. It's like, if you say anything other than yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir, anything other than instant obedience, it's the same as if you had cast an evil magic spell over this family. And that's another way that you could fuck a child up by giving them so much power to, you know, literally invite the devil into your home. It's more than a six or seven year old should be able to handle. Which incidentally was also when I got saved, quote unquote, um, as a child, because I knew that my parents had been pressuring me to do it for a long time. Like they start you early, like from age three or four, they start telling you're a rotten, no good sinner and you need Jesus. So by the Mm -hmm. age of six years old, you know, I told dad after church one night, I was like, I need to get saved. And so there was this big hoopla when I finally prayed the prayer and did all the things that he told me to. And I was baptized about a year later. I guess they wanted to see if it stuck. I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, the indoctrination starts and all that even started before we got into IBLP. Like the fact that I was a preacher's child meant that the pressure to believe and the pressure to publicly express that belief and the pressure, if nothing else, to make the ministry look good and to make dad look good was on from a very early age. And it only intensified when you added the cult element to it. Yeah. Chad, did you, so when you quote, got saved, you say the sinner's prayer, you now, you're reading your Bible, you're praying, you're doing whatever they're telling you you need to do to be a quote, good Christian. Did you ever feel a sense of actual, like, conversation with God or guidance from God or any kind of moving of the Holy Spirit or whatever you want to call it? Did you ever have that kind of sense or was it always just going through the motions to satisfy what your parents and what the church expected? I mean, if you had asked me that as a child, I would have said, oh, absolutely. God speaks to me all the time. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll pray and I'll just feel some kind of way about something. And, you know, that's definitely the prompting of the Holy Spirit or that's the Holy Spirit's conviction or, you know, just... And I'll give you an example. You know, there would be times that I would uh, read something in a book that, you know, might have been a little bit too much for me to process or maybe, you know, something about death or something that's, you know, a heavy fare for a child. But going to my dad about it would almost always lead to a long discussion about, you know, how I was being spiritually attacked or whatever, just by having emotions. So I was taught that any thought in my head was either the Holy Spirit speaking to me or the devil trying to get in through a side door. Also, if I ever went Mm. to dad with any of these normal questions that a child would have, it would get turned into a sermon illustration about 
two or three weeks later. And, you know, then oh. I, I learned very quickly that nothing I ever said was ever private. Oh. So, mm. so yeah, I, I believed it at that point that, you know, I was getting all these promptings from God and that I was also getting all these, you know, tricks from Satan trying to get me to misbehave and what have you. And, you know, again, I, I didn't stop being a strong-willed child. So, you know, I was still routinely punished for even minor infractions and told over and over that Satan was trying to take over my mind. And I was just trying to live life as a kid, you know? Oh, God. <laughs> so, oh, God. So I realized now a lot of that was just, you know, my brain hadn't stopped cooking yet. One of the most freeing things I ever learned in therapy was that your brain doesn't really mature until you're in your mid-20s. Yeah. Holy shit. I was expected to be a 30-year-old at age seven. Of course it didn't of work. Of course. Yes. Oh. But I always was curious and I always had these questions because I truly did read my Bible. I was an early reader and mm. I would I would get bored and start reading it during dry sermons and everything and just, you know, go off on rabbit trails of whatever else I wanted to learn. And I noticed some of the contradictions. I noticed the for example, the differing order of events in both Genesis one and Genesis two about the creation. But I learned very quickly if I started asking questions about that, it would lead to yet another long lecture and possibly a beating for entertaining any doubts. Mm. So I just had to toe the party line that the Bible was 100% true and the inspired word of God, specifically the King James version thereof. And if I deviated any which way from that, I would, um, yeah, I would face the consequences. But looking back, I know now that, you know, that, little voice that I talked about in the documentary that said in the back of my head, this is wrong. Like that never went away. Uh, yeah. And I learned later on, you know, through my own healing process, that wasn't a demon. That was me. That was you. That was my own critical thinking. That was my own self-preservation saying, Hey, you know, this is, this is something you need to keep in mind and you need to, when you're able to safely deal with it, you need to deal with it later. Yes. Wow. And that that is something that just strikes me to the core of my heart is that what we labeled strong-willed children. And it's usually the very intelligent among us, mm -hmm. right? You have this really strong inner voice, a lot of critical thinking skills. And then now you're having to figure out how to kind of I don't want to say manipulate your way through the family, but it's, but I can relate to that with my, my own children. I have one who would have been labeled a strong-willed child and I am so grateful for him today. I am so grateful for voices like yours, Chad and Abigail and all of the ones that have been giving voice to all of these feelings that you've been feeling growing up because sitting on the other side, those are tough conversations to have with your own child. And I don't know, we can get into that in a little bit as far as you trying to go back and telling your parents, but you all have been my teachers because I've been able to step back and listen to the podcast and listen to your stories and understand what you're going through through those times. And then going to my children on my own and saying, let me tell you what I've learned about what this did to you. And I... 
can't thank you enough for growing up and being able to give intelligent voice to all of that. It's been very powerful. And, you know, we're doing everything that we can with our generation that are still in this. Of like, listen to these people. Listen to what is happening. It's very, very powerful. That means so much. Thank you. It really does. I think it's it just it's hard to describe what it means to hear especially parents going back and talking to their children about these things in a really honest and meaningful way. It's, um, I don't know. That's what I talked about in therapy this week, actually. Very good. Well, Chad, we, um, you know, in our conversations with Abigail, we heard very in depth how purity culture impacted her starting at, I think she said nine years old and then through her teens, of course. And well, Tracy and I, we had our own experiences, but it was a a bit of a different version of purity culture. We had signed up for it, whereas you guys were just dragged along by your families. And I was thinking, okay, well, me and Tracy and Abigail talking about it, we're all women. And I realized that I've never actually talked with a man who grew up in purity culture and to hear a bit firsthand how that affected you in growing up and in your development mentally, emotionally, sexually. And if you're up for it, I'd just love to hear your personal perspective and and as well as anything that you care to share about what you saw and think about what this does to boys and young men in general. Absolutely. Well, and I always preface whenever I talk about this, I always preface this by saying, you know, nothing that I'm about to say right now should ever take away from the fact that women in particular and those assigned female at birth, they had it the worst because this system was designed specifically to oppress them and they suffered greatly because of it. Yes. So it, so whenever I talk about this, I, I want to make it very clear that I never want to sound like, oh, the men had it so rough and everything. There was damage and there were things that happened. Yes, but it should never take place over the people it was designed specifically to hurt. Now, that being said, mm-hmm. yeah, there was a lot of hurt. And especially for someone like me who... I have been told by many people across all walks of life that I don't really fit the general traditional masculine mold. I'm a straight dude, Mm. but I don't really do a lot of the typical things that you would associate with that. Like, you know, I'm not much of a hunting, fishing, working on trucks kind of guy. I am more at home reading a book or playing on a computer or, you know, fixing a computer for that matter. I'm more of an indoorsy type. I've always had my own interests. I've never been athletic in the least, uh, even from a very early age. I always had a lot of energy, but I never had much interest in going out and exercising. I had bad joints as a child that were never seen about because we were too poor to to afford going to the doctor most of the time. Hmm. So I just uh, always just been who I am. And one of the things that you're taught early on in IBLP is that by virtue of being male or assigned male at birth, you are, you're expected to be a leader. You're expected to be 
uh, the top tier of the umbrella under God and secretly under Bill Gothard as well. But you're supposed to be the one that's protecting mm-hmm. your family. You're supposed to be the one that's leading your wife and children. And, you know, you have the greater responsibility and you're going to stand before God and talk about how you use that responsibility. Mm-hmm. And frankly, to me, that always sounded exhausting because I was like, <laughs> yeah. I just, I just want to live my life, guys. I just want to do the things that make me happy, you know? And Do you remember how early that you can pinpoint when that kind of message started? Or were you, I think we talked about with Abigail, the slow frog boiling in the water. Did it just always seem to be there? I mean, it always seemed to be there. Dad took a lot of... Uh, umbrage anytime anything took place of his authority in the home and he would tell us about that what one of the reasons early on that you know the tv was just flat out you know shut down was because we happened to be watching it and this is even pre-iblp we were watching it when he came home and uh, we didn't give him an enthusiastic enough response that he was home from work so he was mm-hmm. like well obviously you know something else is the leader of the family so we're not watching tv for anymore and that lasted a few months but yeah it's uh he- the idea that the man is in charge was always uh, put into us from a very, very early age. And um, of course, you know, with a, with an abusive mother who tended to have very bad emotional control issues and everything, that dynamic looked weird from time to time because it was very unclear as to who was struggling for the power dynamic when, but we were told mm. early on that, uh, you know, that the man is always in always in charge of the house. And dad would tell me during those ritualistic spanking times that the reason he was doing it was he was going to have to stand before God and give an account of how he reacted Mm. to the situation I put him in. So again, all this was the blame was put on me. So it was, it was very much ingrained. And I think where it came to like a full head was when I attended the alert cadet program in Knoxville, 1997, during our big family seminar that year. Uh, It was during, well, the week of my 12th birthday, I turned 12, like directly in the middle of that week's activities. And it was just three days of, you know, going out and doing boy scout adjacent things, but very unplanned and very sloppily put together uh, to say the least. Now, again, I was a nerdy kid. I, you know, didn't have a lot of athletic interests at all. So the first time we double time marched in formation, I fell like three units back because we were literally running and I couldn't keep up. So I ran all the way from the big arena we would meet in every morning all the way out to the field. And I'd be exhausted when I got there. Other things like uh, we went rappelling down the big world's fair tower in Knoxville. Um, I fainted as soon as I got out there in my harness and everything and started to go down the wall. They had to pull me back up. For our listeners and for you, Chad, I live in Knoxville. Woohoo! So I'm visualizing that beautiful (laughs) building with the big shiny sun sphere on top. Yep. I think it's also really valuable here to think about, you know, we had discussed in as I was telling my story previously that I was so jealous of that the boys got to do alert and the girls had to do Excel, which was like tea parties and cleaning. And, and I, I really appreciated hearing Chad's version of how horrible alert was for him when I, on the other side was so jealous of it. And that, that has been really a super valuable perspective. Absolutely. I mean, well, 
I'll, I'll be honest, I was kind of jealous of y'all until I learned until I learned the you know horrific like misogynistic reasoning behind it. Because as a kid, I was like. Well, they get to be indoors all day. I'm out here sweating my ass off. <laughs> but uh... Yeah. And do you know what, what's <laughs> awful about that is there's no place to understand children and what you would like to do for the summer. Right. And just putting you in these camps that are drilling all these things that absolutely have no interest to you all. And I'm so sorry for that. And you think, no, no one can just go have fun. You can't go to a fun place where you get to pick and choose. So, Chad, in the midst of this alert or other IBLP-sponsored programs, was there anything official that presented to the boys about puberty and changes in your body and hormones and all the stuff that comes with gradual sexual awakening? Was that ever addressed? Not officially an alert, but it actually did happen that week because... As I said, I turned 12 in the middle of it. So the second day of alert, uh, it was a three-day thing, alert cadet. I turned 12, and after I was done, and that was the repelling day, that was the obstacle course day that I failed miserably in, Mm -hmm. and I was done. I begged Dad. I was like, please don't make me do another day of this. I said, I will sit and listen to the boring speakers all day. I don't care. So Dad decided, he was like, well, it's your birthday. He said, we'll skip a couple of sessions. I'm going to take you out for you know, a nice burger and ice cream or something for your birthday. And so we went out there uh, to some kind of mall. I forget where it was uh, in the Knoxville area. We had uh, we had a burger. We had some Dairy Queen. And then uh, we walked around the mall while dad told me that my difficulties with Alert Cadet were his fault because he didn't train me to be a man enough. Oh. He said, I should have from an early age forced you to do more physical things. He said, I should have, you know, never let you just sit around and read books and, you know, work on the little Commodore computer we had. He said, you know, you should have been out there doing things as a man because we have some horrible things coming up for Christianity in America and we're going to need warriors. And your name, Chad, means warlike. You're supposed to be a defender of the Lord and we can't have you, you know, not strong enough to to do that. And he said, and that's where I failed as a father. Oh my God, Chad. So, that taught me that my spirituality was linked to how much of a caricature of a man that they were pushing these uh, fathers to, to push on their children in these sessions that they were sitting in. Right. And then we walked past a Victoria's secret display. Oh, I remember my dad told me, he said, also, you're probably going to be getting some urges and you're probably going to be, getting some feelings you don't understand and be tempted to look at things you're not supposed to. He said, and that happens to everyone. It happens to me too. So I'll make a deal with you. If you tell me when it happens to you, I'll tell you when I'm tempted as well. Okay. Oh, oh, that's so appropriate. Well, that's the thing. I was a sheltered 12 year old cult child. I knew that was a trap. I was like, oh, that is that is 100% something I'm never doing. So to my, to my knowledge and recollection, oh, I never God. told him any time I was tempted to look at anything. I was just like, well, yeah. Good I'm- for you. That goes to that intelligence again. Thank God. <laughs> Strong-willed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we never really had any formal sex talk. Uh, he tried to tell me. A couple of things one time when we were on the deputation trail as missionaries going church to church raising money, it was just me and him going off to some church in Kentucky one time. And he 
took the long drive to explain to me. He was like, some things are going to be changing with your body. It happens to everyone. Don't worry about it. Uh, also, don't play with yourself. We'll talk more about that later. And we never did. And also, he kind of played in my mind. He was like, I was like, wait, that's an option? So, So yeah, thanks, Dad. You did you did give All me right. some good advice uh, that that was possible. <laughs> <laughs> did you struggle with if you were still bought into this belief? Or I don't know. Maybe you weren't bought into the belief about purity. Maybe it was just I'm just keeping my head down and getting along, going along to get along. Or did you believe it? I believed it uh, to the point where. I knew that if I expressed any kind of interest in anyone or if I uh, expressed any kind of sexual proclivities at all, I would immediately like be submitted to yet another interrogation by my parents. And so I just kind of like kept it all in the DL. I, as much as I learned to block pain, I also learned to block any kind of interest I had in, you know, anyone I was talking to uh, any girl who I found attractive or any girl Mm -hmm. I had an interest in. I would just, you know, go into that mode of, okay, well, this is all business. Because, I mean, you weren't supposed to talk to girls in the first place, but um, I did because, you know, I I wanted friends and I'm a chronic extrovert. So whenever I did, I would just like try <laughs> to try painfully to make it look as platonic as possible because uh-huh. I didn't want anyone to even think for a minute that I had an interest because otherwise I would be getting like her dad asking me questions, my dad asking me questions and stuff like that. So I bought into it so much that, you know, I just became very wooden around others. So it sounds like you, your survival technique was really to close down, shut down, cut off the emotions, interest, curiosity, whether it had to do with a particular girl or the whole sexual realm for you, it's like, no, no, don't even go there because that's going to make everything worse yes but i mean at the same time i still had you know hormonal changes that happened to everyone i still had the um the interest in sex and what have you so i would just find different ways to find out about it and i think the most brilliant stroke of genius i had as a teenager was using the fact that my parents were thrilled that i would read the encyclopedia for fun Against them on that one, because when they weren't looking, I would pull the S volume of the encyclopedia off the shelf and learn what they weren't telling me. <laughs> oh, so and how, how old were you? I was like 15 or 16. So smart. Perfect. Yeah, it seems that you were really learning the skills of reading the room and reading all the different things that you knew would get you into trouble and then monitoring your behavior by what can I get away with or how can I couch this so that it's not going to send any alarms off for them, which is another sign of intelligence. It's like, ah, aha. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. IBLP didn't actually make us better. They just made us good at hiding, you know, what we truly wanted to do. Wily, wilier, yes. sneakier, <laughs> sneaking. What uh, what do you remember about the other boys, your other friends, teenagers? What did you see happening around you with how they were navigating these purity culture waters? 
I will say one thing, especially about the men, that perspective or anything. I th- one of the reasons I think that we don't hear as much from them is because a lot of the guys I I grew up with and who were in IBLP, they tended to take a view of, well, I went through it and it's behind me now. Why should I ever think about it again? Mm. And I'm like, well, lucky you, because all that brainwashing and all that toxic shit that I learned keeps me up at night. So, I mean, glad you can do it, but some of us just couldn't. So, yeah. Well, and it's so powerful for other people to hear because, you know, while they may be perfectly fine to turn away, I betcha 100% it's impacting their lives. Mm -hmm. And you giving voice to it gives people the courage to like, oh, I, I was thinking that I was struggling with that. So... Definitely. Very, very grateful for that. Yes. Yeah. So it's a little difficult for me to to tell what happened during my teenage years with my peers who were in the cult, because at that point, uh, right after we went to the conference in 1997, we went back overseas as missionaries to the Netherlands and Belgium, where I stayed from the age of uh, 12 to age 19. So during my teenage years, I was kind of isolated. Uh, But I do remember what happened before I left the States and what happened after I came back. And one thing that I noticed was a lot of the boys, especially the ones who went through Alert Cadet and what have you, they learned that at least playing that version of masculinity that was preached to us. And in between all the activities and everything, we did have sessions where speakers would get up and tell us that we were, you know, training to be warriors for Christ and we were going to bring in the next era of Jesus or what have you. I did notice that a lot of boys did uh, take that to heart and they went full on into, you know, trying to be the best version of IBLP's idea of masculinity they could. I think some of them because you know, it meant less trouble at home and they were more approved by the the cult and their peers and their parents. Others, they kind of had a natural proclivity to it, whether through trauma or what have you. And it just became more of a natural fit. And unfortunately, when I came back to the States, I did see some of my friends who tended to be more excited about the worst teachings that we got about our sex and everything. Are you talking, when you say that, are you talking about the ability to kind of lord it over the women in your life? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. The whole idea that we were special because of who we were um, as men. Because you have a cock and balls. That's why (laughs) you're so special. Our cock and balls made us uh, (laughs) superior in some way. A lot lot of guys (laughs) really latched on to that. And unfortunately, when I came back, I noticed that they become variations of the abusive assholes that ran the cult. Mm. And that was very disappointing to me. Others didn't, you know, I, I sincerely hoped and I can only tell you that how I'm judged on this is just by the people who knew me at the time. And I sincerely hope I wasn't one of those folks. Cause I didn't want to be, but there, there were some who kind of kept their heads down and, just pursue their own interests and maybe took advantage of the fact that they were in large families to kind of hide out and just, you know, do whatever they wanted to kept quiet until they left home and then could pursue their own interests themselves. So it was a, it was a mixed bag, but the goal was to make essentially Josh Duggars, which look how Mm. well that turned out for Josh Duggar. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so, and I was giving a a little heads up that we had done our purity culture episodes one through four. And one of the things Sharon and I explored was just masturbation. And of course, we lived in a commune where that was very much preached that that was sin. And since your dad kind of gave you a hint that you could play with yourself, was that something that you had to fight and feel guilty? Or did you just have a more healthy relationship with that than a lot of people in that belief system have? Oh, 100%. I felt guilty every single time. Um, I I found out pretty early on that I could, you know, play on myself and it felt good. Um, the first time I ever orgasmed uh, through masturbation, I thought I had broken something. Did not expect that reaction, but... Uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> then I found out later, okay, well, that's normal. That That's fine. But um, okay, but wait, 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 ex- wait, 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 wait. So you found out that was normal. Was that through the encyclopedia? That was a hundred percent my question, Tracy. <laughs> I wanted to know if it was from the encyclopedia. <laughs> yeah, the encyclopedia said that it happened, and I was like, "Oh, that's what that looks and feels wow. like." Okay, cool. Yeah, right. But you didn't. You wait, wait, wait. You also you didn't leave like sticky evidence in the pages of the encyclopedia did you i did not have the encyclopedia when this occurred i had a very vivid imagination let me just put it that way oh i'm so sorry excellent good 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 (laughs) no no that's a valid question though um and also and i'm I'm just going to go straight into it um you know wet dreams nocturnal emissions those started you know even before that and I had a great deal of shame with that because Mm -hmm. that was another thing. My dad was like, if that ever happens, let me know and we'll take care of it. Well, I didn't trust dad with pretty much anything. Okay. Was he going to take care of it with magic? How was he going to take care of that? Like you're asleep. I don't know. (laughs) I, I did not know. And I didn't want to find out because I learned from an early age that anything I said was there was a possibility of it becoming a sermon illustration later. Oh, and you don't want yeah. that as a sermon illustration. Oh no. No, but okay. Wait, I gotta, I got wait, I gotta, I'm going to stop you for one second. Cause I'm going to admit that the last few days I have really been having my own private enjoyment party, imagining Bill Gothard, who is now in his eighties, never married, how many times in his lifetime do you think he's whacked off? Uh, um. Wow, Sharon. <laughs> Stunned <laughs> silence. Come on, think about it. Yes. You think that this dude has not had an ejaculation because he's so pure? You think that as he's been spewing this shit, so to speak, to everyone else about purity and everything else? <laughs> yeah, spewing. <laughs> I mean, come on. You you know that this guy whacks off. I just I just had this insane repressed memory moment, like just now. And I cannot for the life of me remember who told me this story. It was someone I grew up with. Somehow they had found out, I guess, from their mother. I don't even know. But that every time they had sex and he came, his coming words or what a blessing from the Lord. Oh, no. Like, that is a repressed <gasps> memory that just came into my head. A story a friend of mine told me, like, about her parents. And I cannot, like, I just, and, and somehow when you said that about Bill Gothard, all I could think about is him. <laughs> 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 
saying. What a blessing from the Lord. Abigail, you know what he probably actually called it? An awesome, awesome sight. Oh my God, he did. That is absolutely what he called it. Okay, wait, got to fill me in. I think I'm out of the loop. What's the awesome, awesome part? He would say that at gatherings like Knoxville and such. You know, things like if there was a group of like a hundred beautiful Gothard women, and they would sing his favorite hymn, which is so traumatizing to this day. But and then when it was done, like all of his little horrible enslaved women would sing this hymn, and then he'd get on stage and be like, "Oh." What an awesome, awesome sight. <laughs> More of his jerk-off fodder. I bet you he played it in his head <laughs> while he's playing Ew. with his other head. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know what? It just, I feel like this guy is put up on a pedestal. And who of his followers... Who can imagine that, what, has he been in virginal purity himself his whole life? Many people think that, yeah. Give me a I mean, I would say that is the predominant <sighs> belief system is like he is akin to Paul in his virginal wow. thorn in his sideness. That's just too funny. That's just ridiculous. Like how many times do you remember people likening Gothard to Paul. I mean, it was it was constant. Yep. Yeah, I mean, even that for me, because mentioned to you, Abigail, in our earlier interview that I went to the, you know, youth conflict seminar. And that was one of the things that somebody with critical thinking had posed. How does this man who's never been married give advice on family and children, and it was always likened to Paul. It's like, well, <laughs> Paul was not married, and he didn't have children. And look, he wrote, you know, most of the New Testament. Jesus wasn't married, and he didn't have children, and he's able to give us instructions. So Bill Gothard can also give us instructions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was it. Okay, so back to Chad. I'm sorry that you started to say, Sharon, that that gave you a little enjoyment. I'm a little worried about you. <laughs> well, I, I'm sorry. It just does. Okay. I may not masturbate again for another month after that. Yeah. But yeah. Right? I mean, I think it could ruin us all. <laughs> oh, my God. That'll cure you. That'll cure you. Just imagine Bill Gothard doing it. Oh, my God. <laughs> God. They really should have. Like, I think if they had just preached that from the pulpit, it would have worked much better. <laughs> I think you're yeah. right. It's so ooh. Ooh. Okay, sorry. So Chad, how do you how do you follow that? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the the only thing I can say is when when those things started happening, when I did have a wet dream, I never told my parents about it. I would go through elaborate attempts to, you know, hide my night clothes, underwear and everything. Your sin, Chad, you were hiding your sin. Yes. I was hiding it until I could put it like deep into the laundry hamper where, you know, mom would never see what had happened or maybe think, you know, that, oh, that's just something from a couple of days ago. Like, I got really good at hiding, you know, anything involving my sexuality or anything that I desperately didn't want my parents to know about. 
Mm-hmm. And I would hide masturbation as well. You know, I would, uh, I got pretty good at taking short showers and getting things done in pretty quick order. I mean, God, I miss being 16, but, um, <laughs> but it was, uh, but, but it was also a shame because every time I would do it inevitably, you know, something awkward would happen in my life. Maybe I would get a cold or maybe I would twist an ankle or something like that. And I would always tie anything that happened in my life to, Oh, I masturbated. So therefore God is judging me. Again, it's that whole Mm. cult mentality of if something wrong happens to you, it's probably on you. Not probably. Yeah. That's the mind fuckery. And it's, it's so terrible to have that part of your adolescence and growing up. So terrible. So, Chad, I'm curious about how and when your beliefs began to shift. Yes, uh, me too, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was not overnight, I will tell you that. And even after I graduated and left IBLP and ATI behind and my family moved on to other things for my younger siblings, I still tried to make the beliefs make sense for me. And one thing IBLP and ATI do not do is prepare you for the real world. Mm. Um, I was already too old and uh, my parents were too broke to send me to any of the training centers or headquarters. And they didn't care at that point. Anyway, the colleges that um, I was recommended that my parents did approve of were all fundamentalist paper mills like uh, or diploma mills, rather like Pensacola Christian college, Bob Jones university, Patrick Henry college, which was my personal Mm. pick. All those were, you know, just, they didn't work out. So I took a bit of a gap year and I started working as a minister of music for a church in Mississippi that my dad was affiliated with. And it was a small church, older congregation, and they were trying to rebuild uh, to a sustainable amount of folks every, every week, basically to keep the lights on. So I saw it as my mission to help this church. Well, it was a secluded church. It was very fundamentalist, uh, very old school. The pastor was a younger fella. He was in his mid-30s, which is unusual for most independent fundamental Baptist churches. And uh, we struck up a friendship, and he kept telling me his vision for the church. I believed in his vision as he shared it with me, even though I noticed that he had a tendency to be a bit of a control freak. And this came to a head about a year after I started working for him when his wife left and sued him for emotional abuse. Mm. It hit the paper and everything in that little town. Wow. He resigned as pastor, but somehow a month later she came back and everything was just fine. And he wanted to be pastor again. And I knew something was wrong there. I said, this has red flag all over it. And come to find out this had also happened previously at another church he had pastored before he had come to Mississippi, but no one had mentioned that to us when he became pastor there. So the church voted him back in and I resigned immediately. I said, again, there was that little voice in the back of my head that said, this is wrong. Yeah. I said, I I can't serve under this. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm out. So I told my dad about it, you know, because he was also involved in the situation. And we we commiserated on it later. And he said, well, it's sad, but these things happen. And it's best not to talk about it because we don't want to damage his ministry. Hmm. And that was unusual for me because my dad had been very vocal about ministries that had done wrong things before. He had actually left a college in his early ministry and everything that he was convinced the faculty was having seances. And he led 
public student protest on that. Wow. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah, horror of horrors, Where's right? Where's that church? <laughs> <laughs> it is no longer there. Uh, <laughs> it was that effective. And, and, he had, and he had spoken out against other preachers, but this time, because it was something close, he said, well, we're just not going to talk about it. And that immediately sent up red flags in my mind. And as I tried to make sense of what had happened and why, in my view, why God would have let this happen, because, you know, he had allegedly promised to bless ministries and to keep them viable and on the straight and narrow. And if you did the right things, the right things would happen. It didn't happen here. And now we're not supposed to talk about it. So I started looking into other ministries where there had been allegations of things happening and inevitably they all led back to preachers that I was taught to revere and to mm. hold in high regard that my dad did. So people like Jack Hiles, who led a uh, cultish church up in Hammond, Indiana, he had horrible allegations levied against him by his own daughter, even that, um, you know, I believe are absolutely credible. My dad told me that, you know, we don't talk about things like that. And his son-in-law who was legitimately like convicted and served time for horrible sexual abuse of a minor. Mm. You know, dad told me, well, we don't talk about that either. Oh my God. And I've, I finally had a confrontation with him where I said, Hey, look, I said, all these people, this, this keeps happening. And I found out too, that there had been, while I was gone, there had been sexual abuse of my friends uh, here in the Birmingham, Alabama area by people, you know, fathers in ATI and IBLP who I've been taught to look up to. And I I, I told dad, I was like, why was I never told about this? And he said, well, these things happen. Yes, but we don't talk about it because we don't want to make the ministry look bad and hurt the cause of Christ. These things, wait, 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 wait. These things happen. Yes. These things happen. Yep. These things happen because, you know, we're just men after all. These things happen. It It is so maddening, Chad, to hear over and over and over the dismissiveness, the looking the other way, the not facing up to it because of some greater good because of the message of Jesus. I'm sorry, just had to say that. I'm right there with you. <laughs> Keep going. You're 100% correct. No, no, that needs to be said because normalizing this shit keeps it going. Keeps it going. And that's what I told him. I said, I didn't sign up to hurt people. I didn't sign up to let them continue to be hurt. I said, that's that's not what I thought was happening here. And I'm disappointed. And we had a huge falling out over it. And I finally just said, I'm out. At, at that point, I tried to make Christianity work for me and other, other various ways it ended up not working, which is another whole side conversation. But that was really the catalyst for me leaving. It was just story after story after story mm. that had been suppressed by people who had been hurt. And then, of course, right around that time, all the allegations came forward about Bill Gothard and the women who worked for him at headquarters. And that shattered my entire world because this is literally my schooling from the age of like seven till my graduation. I was taught that this was the if I followed these rules, that these things would never happen, and they fucking happened in the cult. And that that threw me mm-hmm. into a tailspin. That was actually when I started taking therapy because I just started having random panic attacks and saw my world collapsing around me. It was traumatizing in and of itself. Wow. What year was that? 
This, well, it, it was a gradual process, but it was around, I would say, 2012 to 2014. 2014 was when Gothard, when his um, allegations came, came forward and he resigned. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. And can I just say and call out that the sweet boy in you is having to cry out and fight Christian institution to say, wait, 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 we sh- we're not supposed to hurt people here. And you're getting argued back. <laughs> like that is, mm-hmm. if that's not screwed up, I don't know what is. And and that's what we're seeing is just this domino effect of so many of these ministries that have turned away and hidden so many of these abuse stories. And I just want to thank you for being one that would stand up and say, no, I didn't sign up to hurt people. This isn't right. One of the last times my dad and I ever hung out together just ourselves, me and him, we went fishing together um, sometime in the mid-2010s. I don't remember when. But I remember him just volunteering. It wasn't even part of the conversation. But he just said, look, son, he said, I saw and heard a lot of things in a lot of the ministries I've been involved in. He said, and there were some people who probably should have gone to jail for what they did. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't my place to speak out. (laughs) And I looked at him and I said, I looked at him and I said, whose place was it? You are an independent fundamental Baptist preacher. Allegedly, there's nobody higher up on the chain because you're independent. There's no convention or anything. I said, if not you, who? Mm. Who had the right to speak out? He didn't have an answer. That is so good. That is so good, Chad. You know what pisses me off is that they'll, they'll look back and point to the scriptures about David and Saul, right? Because mm-hmm. David, the man of God, the man after God's own heart, he is not going to touch, quote, God's anointed. And that bullshit is how it gets justified. And you know what it is? People are just cowards. I'm sorry, they are just cowards. Because if they're going to challenge the powers that be, that means they're also going to have to kind of question a few of the foundational beliefs, and they just don't want to go there. They just don't want to go there. And and you say that was the last time you guys had a deep conversation? It was the last time that we had a deep conversation, just he and I mm-hmm. by ourselves. Everything else, or every other time we hung out after that, uh, which became fewer and fewer as my family became more and more toxic to hang around. Um, every other time after that, he always had either my mom or somebody else nearby. We never spent any more time alone after that, really. And then how did you and Abigail meet? Was it around this time as well? We actually met about a year ago. (laughs) I believe we may have met in an online survivor group for ATI. And you picked up on the fact that I was here in Alabama and we just struck up a conversation from there. And we actually met in person for the first time a couple weeks ago. So, cause we've both been just busy as hell, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's, um, it's very rare that I get to meet anyone in this area. Who's ex ATI who will still talk to me because a few people are still sympathetic. And, um, yeah, even if they're out, they are not really happy with the choices I've made and that's fine. You know, they're, they're allowed to have that. But uh, the few people who have, and Abigail included, even though she grew up over in Atlanta, uh, it's something I treasure and I value. So thanks, Abigail. It was great for me, too. And I do think, you know, what what Chad says about 
there are people that are pretty sympathetic to leaving the IBLP as long as you remain in evangelicalism as a whole, but it is a much narrower pool of people who are interested in really hearing the fullness of your story or my story when you've chosen not to stay within evangelicalism as a whole. And um, you know that's been a, a pretty rare and cherished friendship for me. And I think being able to have those, have those conversations with Chad has been really helpful. That's great. I'm glad y'all have each other. <laughs> yes, and have been so generous to share your time with us. In our earlier interview, Abigail, and now with Chad, we did touch on some twisted stuff that's a combination of that purity culture and that ritualized spanking abuse that we've talked about and how these can be a very toxic mix that really impact the development of our human sexuality. And we did ask Chad and Abigail if they would be brave enough to kind of dive into that topic with us. And so we are honored that you are willing to come back and have that conversation with us. Yeah, I just can't overstate how really important I think it is to have this open discussion. And I echo Tracy's gratefulness that uh, Chad and Abigail are willing to come out and put it on the table. So we're going to push the pause button here, continue our conversation, but you guys are going to get to listen to it next week. Yes, and you will not want to miss it, we promise you. But before we sign off, Abigail and Chad, do you want to share with listeners how they can find out more about you or any of your social media or links that they would want to find? Certainly. Uh, I- I'm primarily on TikTok. You can find me at Arch Radish. Uh, that's Chad Harris mixed up. Arch Radish. Uh, you can find me there on TikTok. You can find me at Arch Radish 85 on Instagram. I swear I'm going to actually start using that. Yeah. And also on Twitter uh, at Arch Radish. So yeah, find me there. Oh my God. We've been friends for such a long time. And I just figured out that Arch Radish is your name mixed up. <laughs> I thought he really liked radishes. I did too. I didn't know what it was. I was like, maybe it's like a Mario thing, like from Nintendo. Anyway, um, you guys can find me primarily on TikTok at Unicorn Habitat. Okay. All right. And we will add those links in our show notes. And Abigail, a little something about your work with the Therapy Dog nonprofit as well. Okay, folks, you know the drill. Follow us, rate us, leave a review. Pretty please, yes, pretty please. Yes. It helps us move up in the ratings. Yes, and you can also check out some photos and all of our updates on Instagram. That's feedofclay.cultsisters. Wait, I, I want to ask the brilliant rat. Uh, <laughs> 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 I want to ask the brilliant radish chat. Do you so, tell us, brilliant radish? That, that's my official title now. Yeah, that's, I'm putting it on my business cards. The brilliant radish. <laughs> I don't think anything's better than brilliant radish. <laughs> that's too funny. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We will catch you next time. <laughs>